0: The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
1: Ooh, Shout out to uh, those who uh, listen, uh, whether you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you're following us on the YouTube. Holly and I were like top 20 in Madagascar, other <laughs> countries in that. We we're pretty pumped.
0: Yeah, we are. So Canada, where you at? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Very excited because here's the thing. I I always take these opportunities, Holly. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a learning experience because there are things that I think that I know. And yeah. then there's definitely a lot of things that I don't know. And I feel like this week is one of those, hey, I'm going to learn a bunch of things.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because I think uh, if you turn on the news anywhere. You're going to Mm. hear about a few things, the war in Israel. You're going to hear about uh, food insecurities, housing insecurities. It seems like insecurities and war are dominating all levels of news and conversations. And, you know, sometimes you can feel overwhelmed. I mean, we can't really do too much short of prayer for what's happening Mm. in Israel. But what can we do in our own backyard where people are fighting just to live?
1: Yeah, and there are those advocates. There are those people who are fighting for us, fighting for those who feel like maybe they don't have a voice. Uh, she is a incredibly passionate, an outreach, an outreach worker, among other things. Lorraine Lamb, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here today. Well, I'm so glad um, to have you here today.
1: If Thanks. if. if I had a nickname for you or like if your friends are like, oh, my friends call me because I call Holly Halls all the time and she never calls me. Um, Can I can I call you like (laughs) low or something like?
2: Absolutely. A lot of people call me low. So low, lo fi low rain but low is probably the easiest quickest if you're running out of time and you only have time for one syllable low <laughs> is a good way to go
1: <laughs> amazing well we like to ask this skill testing question because we never know where it's gonna go and that is who are you and where did you come from
2: that is a hard question to answer almost most days so i would say that i am uh well i was born in hong kong lived a few okay. years in singapore um but most of my life has been spent in toronto different parts of toronto um, I've been living in downtown Toronto for the last, uh, oh my gosh, 10 years now, Time flies. Um, I am a daughter to a solo mom. Um, I'm married to a partner named Tim and we have a very extroverted dog named Miso, um, who thinks like he's the mayor of our block. Cause he like walks down the streets and says hi to everybody. It's really cute. And then like people we don't even know, will know his name. So I have no <laughs> idea how that happens, but it's pretty fantastic um yeah so that's kind of where I'm based um I yeah you asked who I am so I guess in terms of like putting on my work hat um I am somebody who works in the community in the downtown east side of Toronto I've been doing that for over 10 years now Uh, most of my work is with people who are unhoused or very precariously housed Mm -hmm. um so that honestly can be youth and adults refugees um new immigrants People who lived in Canada for a long time, um, there really is uh, no discrimination in terms of who is unhoused. Uh, We know that certain populations are more affected, but I don't really have a specific catchment or anything. Um, I am also a musician. I like to read books. I am a raging introvert. So that's me. (laughs) I
0: love that. The raging introvert meets probably one of the most raging extroverts that I've ever met in Johnny.
1: (laughs) Oh, I thought he met you and I'm like, you're not an extrovert.
2: (laughs) Yeah, extroverts, I just like don't understand how they exist in the world. But I'm glad that you are all out there because it, it's kind of like a shield for the rest of us. Like, yeah, you go talk to people. <laughs>
1: but but how does somebody like you then, who's a raging introvert, I mean, you're working with those who you would have to be in communication with, probably mm-hmm. somebody like me, or I'm like, I don't necessarily know if I want to have that conversation, but yet you do.
2: Yeah, so the thing about introverts is that we find energy in um, a lot of alone time, but also in like deep, meaningful one-on-one conversations. And mm. so- um, I think the nature of my work is that I get to have a lot of deep one-on-one conversations with people all the time. That said, I'm usually very exhausted by the end of the day, Um, but it is something that I really thrive in.
0: Amazing. Okay, so someone doesn't become an advocate just because they woke up one day and thought, you know, it would be neat. (laughs) Uh, Really diving into some very challenging situations that are sometimes hard for the average person to fully understand Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. even just acknowledge or digest. So how did we get there? You say that you grew up uh, with a solo mom. I love how you framed that as Mm -hmm. I also grew up with a solo mom. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just such a beautiful way of just like acknowledging that, yeah, they're doing this often by themselves.
2: Yeah. Um, And, you know, I remember growing up like surrounded with, you know, friends and family and like my father was also in the picture, but like not super present. So it was always me and my mom. Um, and a really big part of my upbringing was growing up in a church space. So for her, her faith is a really big part of who she is um and was probably will be for the rest of her life. And so that was really important. It was really important for her that I was also part of a church community growing up. So, you know, there was we were always surrounded by like a village of people, as they say, you know, lots of aunties mm. and uncles and friends. Um, and I would say like, to this day, I know that people will sometimes like call me an advocate or an activist, but like, I totally do not see myself as that whatsoever, um, but I will receive it if that's how people want to refer to me. Um, I think for me, like a big part of how I got here was, it's. I think it's two things. One is curiosity. I think I was just always curious about why people ended up in the spaces that they were in. Mm -hmm. Um, And curiosity, I would say, is probably one of my biggest teachers. And I think the other part was, I just always had this genuine desire to want to help people. Um, and I use the term help loosely because I think um, the longer I do this work and the longer I exist, I realize helping is actually a very problematic term with a lot of um, nuances around power and privilege that I don't think we dissect properly. Hmm. But, you know, growing up in the church context, it was like taught to me that we're to love our neighbors Um and, you know, I think for me, I always kind of wondered, well, what does it mean to love our neighbor? And sometimes, depending on where I was living, I didn't even actually know our, who our neighbors were, like our literal neighbors. Yeah. So I think this idea for me just kind of continued to grow. Like, well, what does it mean to love our neighbors if you don't even know who they are? And I think I just continued to explore that. Um, And when I was in university, I was going to school downtown Toronto and, you know, just was surrounded by people. That were so different for me in different life contexts. And like, I remember going to school, but then like on the other side of the campus door, there would be people who were like sleeping outside and sleeping rough. And I just couldn't quite wrap my head around how there was such a disparity on this mm-hmm. one street, you know, and, and then multiply by like throughout the city. Yeah. So I think for me, I was just always curious about how people ended up there. And as I got to know people in the, in the community, um, my desire to help became less of me, I mean, yes, I still want to help and support people. But I think a really big part became, well, I can't love somebody without wanting to change the systems that they're stuck in. Um, And I think that's where some of this more public facing advocacy stuff started to happen. I, I just wanted to tell people, honestly, in my own life, just like people in my circles, just to be like, hey, like, did you know that like, you know, trying to get subsidized housing is like a 15 year wait for someone. Just, I honestly just wanted to share what I was learning with my like little circle of people that I knew. Um, and then in the world of social media, that was one of the tools that I used. And then it just kind of like blew up and I, I got a lot of opportunities to kind of talk about what I was seeing in like different spaces. Um, and honestly, like, I have no, I don't actually wake up and say today I'm going to advocate for this thing, but Mm. I do wake up and think I'm just going to try to do the next right thing today. And if it's talking about something that I've learned to to somebody who might not know, then I will do it.
0: Hmm. I love how you say power and privilege are problematic Mm. in helping growing up an evangelical church. You know, you go on your annual missions trip and, (laughs) you know, you build a school or, you know, and it's beautiful, I think it helps people understand that there are things that we can do to help. But it's an interesting perspective because whenever Mm -hmm. I would go, let's say to Argentina, you know, we're Mm -hmm. scrubbing floors in a school, I got way more from them than I think Mm -hmm. they got from me. And I think it's an interesting lens to take a look at missions and how you help your community is, is it a power and privilege thing? Like, I feel like I should just do this because, Mm -hmm. or am I like doing this just to like really, truly help them?
2: Yeah, I think that's such such an important question that I think I find myself asking a lot too as I do this work. Like how much of this helping is really actually just about serving my own desire to feel like I'm doing something? Hmm. Because I think especially in the world that we live in, everything just feels very out of control. And I think sometimes a part of human survival and perseverance is trying to feel like we have a grasp on things. So if I can do something to feel like I'm helping somebody, then it's actually, yes, it might help somebody in that moment. But I think it's important to check ourselves about whether or not it's actually just about meeting my own desire to feel useful. And I think a really good example actually is, I've seen this a lot over the years, is You know, there will be really well-intentioned people who might go up to someone who's sleeping outside or especially around Christmas time, you know, and they want to give stuff to people. Um, Sandwich runs were a thing that I, that were really popular when I was growing up. And, and then I would see this dynamic where the person who's on the receiving end would say, no, thanks. I don't want your bologna sandwich or no, thanks. I don't want your socks for whatever reason. I think it's okay. We don't need to know why. No. And then the person who's doing the giving gets really offended. Like, how dare you say no to my generosity? And in that moment, I I often wonder, like, well, why why are you so upset about that? Like, the person mm-hmm. who's on the receiving end has dignity and choice. Um, and so I think that's where we. I think it's important that we can maybe just ask ourselves, like, why we're doing the helping and whether or not our our helping is actually helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is what I love, though, because I want to look at it through the lens of the everyday person because you get to look at it through a completely different lens in some ways being frontline, Is it a stupid statement for me to say, well, the reason why a lot of people are homeless is because that's how they want to be. They want to live. You know, they don't want to insert whatever the reason is, because that's what we constantly hear.
0: I couldn't even control my yeah. face on that one, Johnny.
1: <laughs> um, there are certain statements that we constantly hear. And, and I mean, I want to mm-hmm. talk about um, yeah. the no homelessness uh, after this, but it's like, it, it seems as though we have this idea of, oh, the reason why is because this is what they chose to, where mm-hmm. I think that Lorraine, you being front line of it is like, well, no, there's many different reasons why things like this are happening.
2: Yeah. So I think even the, the word choice is such cringy. <laughs> choice, I think is a word that we can't use if we don't, again, like take into consideration power and privilege and also like systemic things. So I think about a woman who I know that I'm working with who's living outside because her choice, I'm going to use that in quotations. Her choice is to either stay with, um, a very abusive partner mm. or live outside where she knows she won't be physically assaulted every day. Are those two really choices? I would say that they're not really choices. Um We know across the country, food banks are the use of food banks is, is like exponentially skyrocketing. So we have people who are quote choosing to pay rent and not eat. Mm-hmm. Are those really choices? So I, I would say that when, when we hear statements like all oh, people are choosing to live outside, um, I think we need to actually recognize, okay, well, if we're saying that, what are the choices that like, why, why would someone, what is someone leaving behind to say that living outside is, is actually more suitable for them? Um And I also think that the problem with saying that it's somebody's choice to be outside is again, like we've, we have villainized the individual and we haven't yeah. actually looked and asked questions about how we got here in the first place. You know, everybody talks about how it's so expensive to live in Canada now, right? Like my broccoli is seven ninety nine and that wasn't even organic, right? <laughs> um but like okay, so cost of food is rising. Mm-hmm. Have we asked questions about how we got here? Who's um, able to afford a $7.99 broccoli. Have we asked questions about why minimum wage is not actually livable? Yeah. I'm, I, my context is in Ontario and minimum wage right now is like 15 or no, it's gone up to 16. 16 15 an hour. Oh, 15? Yeah. Okay. 16. Yeah. 16, um, an hour, um, before taxes. And then, but meanwhile, social assistance rates are still from like the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to ask questions about these quote choices that people are making and whether or not people actually have the full um, gamut of resources at their disposal to make their choices. And I would say that the people that I work with and the people that I've known over the years, they're doing the best they can and making the choices that they need to survive. Um, And I would say that like, you know, if I were in some of these situations too, um, I can appreciate why people would make these quote choices. Mm.
1: I'm I'm so glad that you brought the uh, up the the cost because um, somebody who's on AISH, uh makes sixteen or seventeen hundred dollars a month. Uh, mm-hmm. Welfare in Alberta and Ontario is anywhere between five to seven hundred, mm-hmm. and then um, and I've heard it been brought up before. Serb when COVID was going on was what two thousand dollars a month. So That's we're right. willing to pay people in Serb more money than we're willing to pay people who are struggling in the everyday. Mm -hmm. When even when COVID's not going on.
2: There is this underlying narrative almost of who deserves access, right? So when the CERB decision was made for $2,000 a month, there was kind of like the societal understanding that yes, people who are working in certain jobs deserve access to have $2,000 a month. And what implicitly that decision is saying is that people who are on disability or people who are receiving social assistance don't deserve that same um, amount of money. Why is that? Um, mm. And, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think it's really important that we ask these bigger questions. And it's connected to that conversation around social assistance. There's also this narrative that I hear a lot where, um, oh, people are lazy. They just want to get a handout. I hear that a lot, too. Um, and for me, like, I think what's missing in that narrative is that people don't realize if you're on social assistance or on disability, if you try to work you actually get money clawed back from you. Yeah. So the system actually makes it really impossible for you to try to get work while you're on the system to get out of the system. Um, and so we've created so many barriers that actually make it really hard for people to get out of certain situations. And and when I hear people say like, oh, people are lazy. They just don't want to work. Well, my other question is then, well, like, can you help them find employment? Because as somebody who went to school, I have relative privilege. I have a lot of friends who can't find work because mm-hmm. employers aren't willing to hire. I think we need to, again, challenge like, well, employers actually aren't willing to hire certain people. There's layers of discrimination, work history, all of those things that come into play. Um, so no, it's not that people don't want to work because, again, a lot of the people that I work with um desperately want to work. It's just that the people who... Um, hold access to the decision-making powers often are not considering um, hiring a lot of the people that we're working with. Mm
0: -hmm. Like unemployment rates or the job rates, like, oh, there's X number of percentage jobs available. Things Mm -hmm. are going really well. Yeah. Can be very misleading. Mm -hmm. And people aren't hiring locally. If people Mm -hmm. are just choosing, oh, that person doesn't quite meet the criteria. Just because Mm -hmm. they're there doesn't mean people are getting those jobs.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's this, like, I I find also really problemi- problematic narrative that, like, well, you know, if you really want a job, you'll just take anything, at least something. Yeah. And then hmm. we find a lot of people in very precarious work environments. A lot of asylum seekers and refugees I know are working, like, cleaning jobs and stuff that have no job security. Mm-hmm. Employers you know, don't have to abide by certain conditions for their workers. Um, so it's really problematic when we say, well, people can just take any kind of job. Well, no. So again, like all of this kind of comes back to like who deserves access, who deserves yeah. safety, who deserves dignity. And I think if we're going to be really honest with ourselves societally, we actually say that people who are disabled, people who are racialized, people who have no status, um, all of our policies right now say that those people don't
1: deserve. I'm going to ask you questions and I don't know, you might not even have the answer too. we're just here. <laughs> right. just The three of us are just spitballing here. Exactly. Um, one of the things, and Holly, you'll remember this too, before you moved to Ontario, was that we had the mayor of Edmonton saying things like, we are going to abolish homelessness. Yeah. We are going to make sure that there is no such thing as homelessness in Edmonton. And years later, homelessness in our city is at an all time high. Um, mm-hmm. A fully housed Toronto, I've heard uh, something like that. Do you think things like that are possible? They
2: could be possible if we chose to prioritize people over profit. Mm -hmm. Um, If we choose to actually live in a world that is rooted in equity. But the way that things are going and the way that um, things have been progressing Mm, I use "progressing" very loosely because I don't think we're actually progressing. Uh, the way that things are moving forward and existing right now, in the um, course of I, time, <laughs> in the course of time, as we know it, um, I would say that we're further away from abolishing homelessness now than when we were 20 years ago. It's fascinating to me because, um, you know, in in the in my existence and the work that I do, when I speak with colleagues and, and other organizers who've been doing this work around housing and homelessness for 20, 30 years, they talked to me about having meetings back in the early 90s and they thought things were bad then. And then mm. now they talk about how like they had no idea that the 90s were going to be the glory days, <laughs> oh. um, which is actually kind of bleak. And so a lot of people who've been doing this work, who've been paying attention to housing and homelessness for the last 30 years, they'll tell you that things have gotten worse. Um So my question, you know, to what you were saying, Johnny, about like the the mayor of Edmonton saying we're going to abolish homelessness. I I find that curious because even the framing around abolishing homelessness, to me, it comes across as like they're just going to like get rid of homeless people as opposed to actually building housing. Sure. So abolishing homelessness to me sounds more like we're going to just make homeless people go away and be invisible because I think the language about abolishing feels very, like, it feels like again it's focused on the individual and not actually like the system. Um yeah, so I'm I'm curious about I mean, we know that the the solution to homelessness is, is affordable housing. Um and right now housing is not affordable. So yeah. um I would say we're pretty far away from from that goal. I'd love to see it in my lifetime, but I don't know if I'm super optimistic
1: about that. Wanna get a shirt that says people over profit.
2: Yes. Yeah. What do you plan on living? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I need to live. Like I know people always want to live longer, but I'm like yeah. I'm good. I don't. I don't yeah. think I need to. Uh,
0: it's too hard.
2: This yeah. life is I'm too hard. Pretty content with where I'm at now. Like I'm in my mid-thirties. There's a few things that I want to do, but like I don't think I need to live till I'm like you know 100. Yeah. You're good.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. I Why have it? a faith question for you. Please. Because I always find it interesting if we take a look at Jesus and what he mm-hmm. did and who we hung out with, then we take yeah. a look at the evangelical church, mm. often there is a bit of a disconnect. And mm-hmm. how have you been able to um, rationalize the faith you grew up with, with the world that you see around you?
2: Yeah, um, I don't think I've been able to, <laughs> to rationalize it. I, I think it's really hard. Um, you know, most of the people that I work alongside in trying to change systems that we're in, most of them don't identify as Jesus followers, mm-hmm. and that to me is really disappointing because I actually think Jesus. Even if we don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, even we just think if if we just think he's some like cool revolutionary, what made him revolutionary was that he was all about flipping tables, literally, but he talks about like the last being first, like his politics were completely radical and centered around Jubilee. And yet I think the big C church seems to care more about empire rather than the kingdom of God. And so I actually have a really hard time Um, figuring out what to do with the church and the people who identify as Jesus followers. I want to believe that the intentions are there, but there is such a huge gap between the intentions and what's actually happening. Um, and the we and the ways that sometimes the church engages with the world to me feels so opposite of what Jesus would do. I I think about the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And we always talk about it at churches, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we want to be the Good Samaritan. We're going to love our neighbors. We're going to be that Good Samaritan. And, and, you know, a lot of churches, like, kind of, like, you know, kind of bash on the people that walked by the guy who got beat up, right? Because that's that's the point. Surely that's not us. We would never just walk by those people. And okay, but I would love to actually just consider the story in that what if the church... Was the people who, um, committed the robbery in the first place? What mm. if the church Christians were the people who actually beat up the guy and left the guy on the side of the road in the first place? We don't ever identify ourselves as, as the robbers. Like, I think, I think the robberies in this story are just kind of like this mysterious, like, eh, somebody hurt that guy, but the church wants to be the good Samaritan that helps. But I think in my observations, the church, the big C church, we are the robbers. We beat up those people and left people there to die. And then we're like thoughts and prayers. We'll post a nice social media square. We'll do our missions trip and do a Christmas thing, pack a shoebox, and then that's it. And so I I think like, I desperately hope for the church to consider our complicity and how we've created the systems that we're in. And that we actually figure out what it means to really be the good Samaritan. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but I think these conversations will hopefully push us closer to that.
0: There's been a, I don't want to say trend, because that sounds like a fad, but yeah, uh, a movement or, you know, you just hear a lot of people who maybe grew up in the 80s and the 90s, Mm -hmm. taking a look at their faith, taking a look Mm -hmm. at the world around them. And there's the idea of deconstruction of faith. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of become like a hot topic. And yet a lot of the Christians or Jesus followers would then say, but like, I'm trying to rebuild it. Mm. There's also that reconstruction part of it. What has your, been your experience with observing that process of people seeing what's happening in the world, seeing what Christian big C culture, not mm. like the the essence of what we're supposed to be like. So culture, mm. the rules of it all. Yeah. And then like, just how do we make that work? How do we ask the questions when maybe they grew up in a place where it wasn't safe to ask questions?
2: right? Yeah, I love that you talk about the process of rebuilding as well. Because I I think sometimes we get stuck in the deconstructing part. Um, But again, like if we come back to Jesus, he, in his parables and his teaching, he would point out like, okay, the Pharisees are doing this and that's not great. And like, you know, that's not great. But he didn't just kind of like leave it there and be like, okay, yeah. good luck, right? <laughs> he then kind of presented, okay, Pharisees are doing this and this is not great. But see the guy who's praying on his own. Here's here's a practical thing you can do. Um, the story of Mary pouring um, oil all over his feet. You know, he talked about like, okay, all these people are choosing to do all these things with their money and resources or whatever. That's not great. But here's here's like an idea. Look, look at Mary. Look what Mary did. And I think to me that speaks volumes about what it looks like to rebuild and reconstruct um i think it's good i think it's really really good to to break down the things that don't work and take it apart but we can't just kind of leave it in a rubble because for me like if jesus says the kingdom of god is here and we are the laborers called to work we can't just deconstruct it and be like well okay let it burn i think it's actually part of our our calling um as Jesus people to figure out what it means to rebuild, to make the world look like the kingdom. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that, like, sometimes there just needs to be space for people before they feel like they can rebuild. And I think that's really good, too, to just kind of sit for a little while, sit in the rubble, be frustrated, deconstruct that, whatever it is. Um, but hopefully along the way, there is opportunities um towards rebuilding, whatever that might look like.
1: Before we get to your why me question, because that's, you know, the whole reason why we're here, I want to ask you this question, though. Um, do you give money to the person or do you give money to the organization? Because, you know, we keep talking about the individual and then there's these great um, organizations and not for profits that are doing things, but there never seems to be the what is the best answer to that question?
2: Uh, that's like one of my favorite questions to be asked. Um, so I... Yes. I think, um yeah, there's a few things I would say to that. So when people say that they prefer giving to organizations than giving to people because they know where the money goes, I would like to say that, no, you actually have no idea where the money goes <laughs> if you give it to an organization. You literally have no clue. How yeah. do you know? Especially when it's a larger organization, there's no way that you know where your $10 goes. No. Um, The last place I worked was um a faith-based place that also relied on donations. And like the biggest... Chunk of money, um, like the biggest cost of the budget was actually staff salaries. Um, and you know, there were people who gave to the place that I worked because they really believed in the work that I was doing and they wanted to, you know, um, support me in that, which is great. But I think a lot of people give to organizations and they think, well, my money certainly is going directly to the person, but it's not, (laughs) it's not. So if we say that we're going to give to organizations because we know where the money is going, Maybe, again, that's part of our earlier conversation. Maybe that's just our way to, like, soothe ourselves, to tell ourselves that we think we're doing something. Mm-hmm. This is not to dismiss, though, a lot of important organizations that are doing really important work. But I think we just have to be really honest about the framing of why we don't want to give to a person. And I think sometimes it's, again, rooted in this idea of deserving. So do I give to organizations? Um, I give to certain organizations, ones that I really believe in the ethos of what they're doing, Um so yes. Do I give to the person? Yes. Um, especially sometimes if there's a relationship in that. And I know a lot of the narratives I hear are like, well, if you give to a person, we don't know what they're doing with it. Well, if you give to a person, you can for sure know that the person is using your money. So that to me <laughs> feels pretty important.
1: Fair. Yeah.
2: yeah. And then the other thing I always hear is, well, if you give money to a person, they might use it on drugs and alcohol. Okay. But I would say it's very, very patronizing and actually very naive to think that if you don't give $10 to a person, then they're just going to stop smoking or drinking. Like your $10 does not determine someone's pursuit of sobriety if that's what you want for them. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there are people that I will give money to who I know are substance users. And if they choose to buy substances with it, that's fine. Um, for me, the important conversation is always like, I care about you as a person. So if you are going to choose to buy substances with it, like, how do we ensure that you're doing it safely? But there's also people that I know who are going to use the money to go buy other stuff that they need, whether it's food, or, um, I don't know, some like a t shirt or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's the proverbs, like, if you're going to give, give cheerfully. So like, if you don't want to give cheerfully, just don't do it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? And I always think, so in Chinese culture during Chinese New Year, we get these little red packets. It's like a gift. Or like, you know, I get Christmas money from my, like my partner's grandparents. When I receive this money, it's mine. It's a gift. They're not going to be like, well, I'm not going to give you this money if you go buy something you don't need with it. They don't do that because I think they see the humanity in who I am. They might judge what I do with the money, right? Like if, you know, my mom might give me like $20 and I might decide to go like buy I don't know, like a giant Toblerone. And she'd be like, you don't eat that giant like Toblerone <laughs> chocolate in your life. She might judge me for that decision, mm-hmm. but she's not going to be like giving my $20 back. I'm never going to give you money again. Yeah. So, so I think again, like we society have this deserving narrative of who deserves access. What are people who are poor allowed to do with their money that like, we don't apply the same principles to our friends or peers or even to ourselves. Yeah. Um. So as far as I'm concerned, like the only times that I feel like I personally am not give, comfortable giving money is well, my own budget. If I'm not able to, I think that's a real thing to consider. Um. There are some people that I'm like, oh, I, I just feel anxious about whether or not. Um, this money might cause more harm in this moment because I know contexts of their lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it comes from a place of relationship. Um, but I would say, like, there are certain narratives about why people choose not to give that I think we need to really challenge um, and examine. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you ever just want to say this is too hard? Like, how do you keep going? Because it seems like it's never ending.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I would probably say that i think about this multiple times a <laughs> day um yeah Aww. and there are definite definitely seasons that feel worse than others um because i think sometimes the scope of things just feels so impossible and like yeah. we're just one person mm. but um i think of two things so one i look at the communities that i'm in And the people that I'm supporting and walking alongside. And they're still here. They don't have the luxury to just decide. I don't want to care anymore. Like this is their lives. So for me, like I think that's what it means to walk alongside people. It's to be in it when the stuff is hard as well. Um, And I think like, you know, when I look at the way that Jesus lived, I think that's basically what Jesus did. He walked alongside people you know, um, he walked in the rubble. He wasn't like, "Eh, too uncomfortable. I'm going to take another route. He like stuck it out. Um, so, you know, I just think about how like the people that I'm supporting are living this and they're giving each other hope. They're giving me hope. So it's like, okay, I don't want to just be like, it's too hard. Forget it. Yeah. Um, the other piece too is like, we live in community with people. Like you can't ignore it. The stuff is just going to be there. I think there are ways that we can choose to like turn a blind eye to it but to me that would not be an authentic way or a jesus way to live and so i i wouldn't be okay with that for me personally
0: well i'm sure throughout your life you've had some why me moments especially you know dealing in the line of work that you do advocating for people so why me can you share a time where you asked that question of yourself of god of just life
2: all the time i
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, actually.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Why me? Why are you talking to these people? (laughs) No, this is great. I think it's a really good question to ask because I think it when I think about why me, I don't think about it as like, oh, why me? But I often use it as an invitation to consider what it is about where I'm at now and the things that I know and the skills that I have to contribute to the bigger picture of of the kingdom of God. So it's funny, actually like this like Moses, the character in um scriptures. He's, like, my least favorite character because I just find him terribly, like, whiny and annoying. Also, like, like my brother, you were, like, born in royalty. Well, like, you weren't, but then you got adopted into royalty. It's like, what are you complaining about? Anyways, I just find Moses really annoying, and yet God still chose him, and yet I find myself with such Moses tendencies, and I'm like, oh, this is so annoying because I am the person that I, like, find annoying, but um, I spend a lot of time... I know my access to privilege Hmm. and I still say, God, I don't want to No, God. I can't, I don't know the right words. I can't do this. Um, And yet what God does is he just says, well, here's the next opportunity. And I think it's a good reminder for me that I just need to do like the next right step in that moment. And I don't need to think about like a five-year plan. Um, I think that I recognize my identity as a faith person in a justice world where those two worlds don't necessarily always intersect. And I feel like there's a really cool opportunity to bridge them, build some bridges here. Um, There's also the fact that I am like a Chinese Canadian and that means that I'm connected to certain spaces um, and people that like also don't intersect those other ones. Um, so I think a lot about what it means to hold all of these hats and identities together. And I don't really think I actually have um, the why part to the why me, and I'm not sure I'll ever know, but I do think that like my experiences thus far have let me, um, be in this really unique space. Um, and you know, I don't ever really know if there's a right or wrong, but I do think that if the opportunities continue to come for me to share about what I'm doing, that feels like a door opening and I'll kind of just run through it. And then if the door slams in my face, well, maybe I'm supposed to turn the other way. I also yeah. remember what I was going to say earlier about it's so hard and like, how do we keep going? And maybe this is connected to the why me question, but I think a lot about the work that I do is palliative care. Um Palliative care is the process of caring for people as they're dying. Mm. And I think it's. In certain contexts, well, actually in a lot of contexts, palliative care is very dignified. It's like kind of honored as this thing like, oh, people are dying from like sickness or whatever. It's really important that we um take care of them, make sure they die with honor and dignity and they have what they need. Um, people in Toronto right now, like for the average lifespan for a homeless man is right about 50. And for women, it's like in their late 30s, early 40s. Oh, wow. wow. So I'm 35, which means if I were homeless right now, I can probably expect that I wouldn't live much longer. So a lot of the people that I work with who are unhoused, precariously housed, um, I think about how sometimes they might never see their lives improve because of the system that we're in. But I think it's really important to me that they die with dignity, that they know that they were valued, that they know that they are beloved image bearers, that they know that like they're comfortable and have access to what they need in the moment. I think that for me, is actually part of the why me question in terms of, I know that, um, I know the love of God for myself and I want that for other people. And I think that's what keeps me going in the work. Um, when I think about it in that context and, and also like the why me, I, um, it's a lot of also just recognizing the gifts that I have and and the experiences that I've had that have got me here and trying to make the most of it, I guess.
1: At Lorraine lamb chop on the socials. You can also check out Lorraine lamb.me. My next t-shirt is going to be just do the next right thing. Lo, this has uh, been so much fun. Thank you for taking some time and hanging with us.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here.
1: I think it is a good reminder that we also can't live with the alls and the alls and the nuns yeah. in the sense that it's not all the church that is doing this and it's not all homeless people who are. And I feel like sometimes we just get so caught up in the, you know, the always and the, you know, and yeah, I just want absolute
0: wanna, statements. Yeah.
1: That's what, that's what yeah. it is. And I just, because there are some people who are doing some amazing things and then there are some other people who you shake your head and you're like, come on, yeah. be better.
0: We know the 80-20 rule, right?
1: Yeah, that's I fair. Like
0: with some of these conversations, it's almost like the 80% on each side is afraid or offended by the 20% on the other side. And it's creating mm. a, a massive divide. And we just can't have good, healthy conversations to figure out solutions to some of these very real situations that our communities are experiencing.
1: And we've said it years ago, and I'll say it again. Sometimes we just need to come to the table. Yeah. and. We need to invite one another to the table and we got to be acceptable to just sit down at the table rather than judging from afar.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Judgment. (laughs) (laughs) But this was good. Oh my gosh. I just, uh, she's so great and it's everything that I thought this would be and so much more.
0: Yeah. So big thank you to Lorraine and all the best that she continues to um, speak up for those who are unable to speak up for themselves and bring their everyday life hardships really into mainstream conversations
1: speaking of speaking up mm-hmm. rate subscribe ring a bell let us know how much that you are a big fan of the why project the projectors need to unite y- y-
0: yes that sounds very aggressive but i'll i'll go there it's um one of those things where we do this because we hope it encourages you. Yeah. Um, but also maybe you know someone who's going through a situation and you can share mm. and they'll get encouraged as well. So um that's all we like to share. To just we're all in this together.
1: Yeah. No Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Instagram, yeah. Twitter, the YouTube. the YouTube, the YouTube, the Facebook, whatever. Just contact us. We'd love to uh, be in conversation with you and check out faithstrongtoday.com.